are listening to Understanding Christianity. I am your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. I teach Old and New Testament and biblical interpretation. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We are going to continue this series on expository preaching. Uh, A few months ago, I started this, and it's kind of been off and on over the past few months. Uh, I teach a Feed the Flock expository preaching workshop around the country, and I thought it would be beneficial to share some of the things that I teach in those workshops on a podcast. And so there have been previous podcasts to this, so if this is the first time you're listening, you may want to go back and pick up the former podcast that talked about a theology of God speaking, a theology of preaching, how God spoke in the Old Testament, how God spoke in the New Testament, the model we see from Jesus, the examples we see in the book of Acts, how the apostles modeled what Jesus taught them in chapter 24. And then in the last podcast, we looked at a definition of expository preaching and some benefits of sitting under expository preaching. So in this podcast, it's going to be more nuts and bolts. Usually when I do this workshop, there's more hands-on where I break the attendees up into groups and do a lot of workshopping and and things. So it's going to be a little bit different than the podcast, but the concepts are the same. But before we get into the 10-step method of expository preaching that I um, often use myself, I want to just remind us of the commission to preach. We see this in 2 Timothy 3. 16 going into chapter 4 Paul writes this to Timothy all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. The word preach there is that Greek word caruso. It means to declare with boldness or authority. It's the same word used of Jesus' preaching ministry in the Gospels where he came preaching the kingdom of God. It's the bold, authoritative declaration of God's word from the man of God who has been called of God. And notice what the pastor is to preach. Preach the word. Now, contextually, that goes back to 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul talks about the nature of God's word. It is theanustos. It is God-breathed. Preach the God-breathed, authoritative, inspired, inerrant scripture. So what should a pastor not preach? A pastor should not preach his personal opinion. He should not preach trite stories, political speeches, motivational talks, casual conversations he is to be tethered to the text of scripture and paul is addressing christians who will one day not endure or not put up with or get tired of sound teaching and the word not endure 
really means from the original language they're going to get bored with God's word. They're going to be apathetic towards God's word, maybe even annoyance. Maybe people are going to get bothered by hearing the full counsel of his word preached faithfully week to week. And what will they want instead? Well, because of their selfish desire, because of their sinful nature, they will want to accumulate or stockpile, the, literally the word there, become captivated by someone who will tickle their ears with what they want to hear. They will want to stockpile, accumulate false teachers. Seek out anyone who can scratch that itch. And what's the result? They'll turn from the truth and wander off into myths. So we as pastors are called to preach the inerrant, authoritative word of God, the bold proclamation of God's word, the called man of God, with the authority of God, standing in the pulpit on the Lord's day, proclaiming the truth of God. Now, we're going to get into a 10-step method. Now, I don't use every 10 of these steps every time I preach. I've been doing this for over 25 years, and so got a lot of experience. But I give these 10 steps as a way to help new pastors or those new to preaching to have some tools in the toolbox that you can use. And so these may be more than what you would need for every sermon, but I want to give you as much tools in your toolbox as you can use. And so let's go step by step, and let's go through what would be a good process. This is not the only process process obviously this is just a template this is a guide this is a helpful tool in no way am I being dogmatic and saying you have to use these or this is the only way this is just a beneficial method I have found to help young pastors or those that are starting out preaching to learn how to do expositional preaching and again in these workshops that I teach there's a lot of group work there's a lot of dealing with specific text and doing some things so it's not going to translate as much into a podcast but I'm going to give you the 10 steps so here's step one And this is actually before you actually begin to preach on the Lord's Day or to preach sermons is, number one, your devotional life, your devotional life. Some people call it the daily quiet time. Are you spending time in God's Word, hungering yourself to feed your soul first before you even prepare a sermon? Let me give you some quotes that I think are helpful from some men who have encouraged me over the years from their writings. George Mueller writes this, quote, The first thing I did was to begin to meditate on the Word of God, not for the sake of public ministry of the Word, not for the sake of preaching on what I had meditated upon, but for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. Before you even begin to do sermon prep, is the word of God dwelling in you richly so that it becomes food for your own soul? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Do not read the Bible to find texts for sermons, but read it because it is the food that God has provided for your soul, because it is the word of God, because it is the means whereby you can get to know God. Notice the theme of these writers, these pastors of old. Food for your soul. Ian Hamilton has written this, Preaching is essentially the overflow of a man's life. No amount of intellectual ability or spiritual giftedness can substitute for a life 
that has been overwhelmed by a personal sense of God's glory, resulting in a personal and deepening sense of the sinfulness of sin. You can have intellectual ability, you can have spiritual giftedness, you can be a great orator, but that does not make you a great preacher of God's Word. So, however you do your daily devotions, spend time reading the text that you're going to be preaching on. Read it in different translations. Pray that God will change your heart from the Word. Think about how the passage personally affects you. What sin has it revealed personally to you in your own life? And so before you begin to work through the text exegetically, spend time in prayer asking the Holy Spirit for illumination and help. So as you begin to think about the text that you're preaching, whether you're uh, preaching expositionally through a book of the Bible and this is the next section, or the next pericope, or the next narrative or paragraph, whatever genre or passage of Scripture you're preaching through, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you help in understanding it. Because we all come to the text of Scripture with biases, and sometimes we don't fully understand the context, and so we need spiritual help, illumination from the Holy Spirit. And so we know that that's the job of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 16, 13 through 14, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will guide us into all truth. Pray this prayer from Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. As you sit down with your text of Scripture, spend time in prayer asking the Lord to open your eyes to the meaning of the text. Psalm 141, verse 4, Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in the company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. So, So let your heart be inclined to understand the truth of God's Word. Not be colored by your sin, not be affected by the things of this world. And so before you even dive into doing the the grunt work of understanding what your text means, there's a spiritual process that comes from the overflow of your heart through your own personal time with the Lord and then praying for illumination, praying that the Spirit would open your eyes to what the text of Scripture means. And so that's step number one. Step number two. This is the exegetical work. Now, this is fluid. There is no one-size-fits-all, but there are some crucial elements to the exegetical work. Again, this is more workshopping, breaking up into groups, and so let me just kind of give you some big-picture items here. Read, read, and reread the text. Read the text over and over again. If possible, spend time in the original languages. If you know Greek and Hebrew, spend time in the original languages doing the translation work. You need to determine the grammatical, historical, literary issues in the text. Doing the grammar studies of the Greek verb tenses. Doing the historical work. How does this fit into redemptive history? The literary work. What genre is this? What particular words or verbs stick out to you? 
Make sure you're reading this text in light of its literary genre, doing an observation and interpretation of the passage of Scripture. Now, again, this is stuff that I teach in my biblical interpretation class at Colorado Christian University. These are things that um, are, are very extensive in doing the exegetical work, but let me just give you some resources. Let me give you some books that I think are helpful in this process. So I'm going to be giving you a lot of resources, a lot of books on preaching and doing exegesis and sermon preparation in this podcast. So a really good one on genre, the different genres of the scripture, is Sidney Gradonis in his book, The Modern Preacher and the Ancient Text. The Modern Preacher and the Ancient Text. He does a great job of showing how to understand each genre of scripture and how you approach that and how you would preach that. Um, And so that's a great book. Also, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, they have two great books. The first one is How to Read the Bible, for all it's worth. Again, this is kind of a big picture genre study, how to understand the different genres. And then they have a follow-up book to that, how to read the Bible book by book. And so they have each book of the Bible, and they give you some tools about how to understand the genre of each of those books. And what do I mean by genre? Obviously, when you sit down and read your Bible, you understand that the Gospel of Luke has a different feel than a psalm. A psalm is poetry. The Gospel of Luke is narrative. A Pauline epistle has paragraphs and logic. It flows uh, from one argument to another. You have the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature. You have Old Testament law passages, like in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. You have Hebrew narrative, like Genesis or the book of Judges. You also have prophetic oracles, like Hosea. And things like that. So you approach these different genres, understanding them differently. You read them differently. You understand them differently. And you have to understand how to preach them according to their context. And so you need to look at how does this passage of Scripture fit canonically into the entire Bible? How does the passage of Scripture that you're working with fit in the actual book of the Bible? And then... um, How does it fit within the surrounding material, the context of what comes before and what comes after? So you're doing the exegetical work trying to determine what the text means. And as you do the exegetical work, you are trying to distill down that passage of Scripture to the purpose, or as some writers have called it, the telos, the, the purpose, the aim, the target. What is your passage about? What is the main idea? What is the scripture author driving home? What's the main point? Jay Adams says this. He says, quote, You must never preach on a passage until you are certain you understand why the Holy Spirit included that passage in the Bible. Fundamentally, there are three general pers- purposes in view. To inform, to convince, or to motivate the members of the congregation in ways that will bring glory to God's name by building up his church. So Jay Adams says basically all passages of Scripture have three main points, either to inform you, to teach you, to convince you, or to motivate you in some way. Now that's that's his understanding of how the Scripture works, but you're, you're getting down to what is the fundamental purpose of this text. And you're doing that through the exegetical work of finding out 
what that passage means in its original context to the original readers in the grammatical, historical, literary context. And then as you're doing that work, it kind of takes you into step three. Step two and three can kind of go together, but I'm just broken these out by step. Step three is the exegetical outline. What is the actual outline of the text? What are the main sections of the text? Is it broken up into specific paragraphs? If it's a narrative passage, is there a flow? Is there like a scene one, scene two, scene three? Um, and, and sometimes your English translations will help you with this, not always. For example, the ESV sometimes does a good job breaking the units of thought into paragraphs. Sometimes if you go to your Greek New Testament, they've done a good job as well. Ag- again, you are trying to determine how, what's the structure of the passage before me. How is it broken up into paragraphs, into sections? Is, is, for example, is verses 1 through 3 a unit of thought? Is verses 4 and 5 a unit of thought? Is, it, is there three parts to it? Is there one main part? That's why you need to kind of work in the original languages. And, and one of the great books, and I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, that really helps you to understand this, a classic book that should be on the shelf of all pastors, and this is Walt Kaiser's Toward an Exegetical Theology. Walt Kaiser Toward an Exegetical Theology. He helps you understand how to do this breakdown, this exegetical outlining. And so you're doing the hard work of figuring out how your passage of Scripture is organized. Are there main sections, subsections? What's the main verb? How, what's the, how do you break down or how do you organize? How is the passage in front of you actually structured? And that may take a while. You may have to spend some time determining if there's two main sections. Is there three main sections? Is there a, a main verb with three adverbs underneath it? Uh, you know, a lot of it, again, depends upon the genre. Like for a Pauline epistle, it's a little bit more complex. For a Hebrew narrative, there may just be one narrative or one account that flows, and there may be like two or three sections to it. And so that's the exegetical outline. You're determining how the actual text before you is structured. That's step three. So step two and three can kind of go together. As you're doing the exegetical work, you're hopefully kind of determining what the outline of the passage is exegetically, just the structure of the passage of Scripture. Okay, step number four, and this may be the hardest part I find in doing sermon prep. So step four is develop a clear, crisp, propositional statement or thesis statement or the big idea of the text. What's the main purpose? How do you distill this passage down to one clear, crisp sentence? Not a compound sentence, but the the most concise, clear, crisp sentence, proposition, thesis that you can basically distill your passage down to what it means. So, for example, in Haddon Robinson's book, and, and actually he's got a great book on biblical preaching, uh, Haddon Robinson says this, he says, I have a conviction that no sermon is truly ready for preaching, not ready for writing out, until we can express its theme in a short, pregnant sentence as clear as crystal. I find the getting of that sentence is the hardest, the most exacting, and the most fruitful labor in my study. I do not think any sermon ought to be preached or even written until that sentence has emerged clear and lucid as a cloudless moon. 
Again, I agree with him. That is the hard part. What what is the purpose? What is the main idea? What's the proposition? What's the thesis? What is the main point of your passage of Scripture? And have you been able to distill that down into a clear, crisp, short sentence? Jay Adams again says this, Until you can capsulize the purpose of the sermon in one crisp sentence, you probably do not yet have it clearly enough fixed in your own mind, even if you think you do. That's from Jay Adams' book, Preaching with Purpose, The Urgent Task of Homiletics. That's an older book from the early 80s, but that's a good book by Jay Adams, Preaching with a Purpose. He kind of helps you understand that. And so as you are distilling the passage of Scripture, after you've done the exegetical work, you are getting it down into the best, clear, crisp sentence of the main idea that you think, through your study, that this passage of Scripture means. And then you need to write out the purpose of the sermon. Not necessarily the purpose. You've gotten the purpose or the main thesis of the passage. Now you're taking the next step. What's the purpose of my sermon? What am I, what am I aiming at in my sermon? If this was what the text is ultimately about, how am I going to preach it? What is my purpose? Is my purpose to convince my purpose to motivate is my purpose to convict is my purpose to inform is my purpose to encourage to exhort to call to repentance and ultimately the purpose of the sermon is going to flow out of that main big idea of the text what is the main thrust the big idea of the text and then how am i going to actually preach this preaching with a purpose. I'm not just going to ramble. I'm not just going to give a running commentary. I'm understanding that the Holy Spirit has given this passage of Scripture inerrant in the Scriptures, and there is a purpose behind it. There's a main idea. There's a proposition. There's a thesis behind it. I've discovered, I've determined what that thesis is. Now, how am I going to preach it purposefully? So that is step four. And again, this is hard work. This may take a lot of time to get that main idea, that sentence, that propositional statement, that thesis, the big idea, whatever you want to call it. Different writers call it different things. The thesis statement, the big idea, the purpose of your sermon. And then here's step five. And again, this I think is some hard work too, but you need to create the homiletical outline. Okay, now what's the difference between the exegetical outline and the homiletical outline? Well, the homiletical outline emerges from the exegetical outline. Remember, the exegetical outline is how is the actual text of Scripture organized? How many different sections? How many different points? How many different, how do they fit together? And then you're going to create a homiletical outline from the structure of the Scriptures. You're not going to impose an outline onto that you're going to let the homiletical outline emerge out of the exegetical outline but this becomes what are your preaching points what are going to be the statements the points the transitions the subpoints how are you actually going to organize your sermon so that it's going somewhere so that it, it actually fulfills the purpose to which the sermon needs to to function so that you can clearly move people along in your sermon and they know where you're going. How does each point relate back to the main point? How is everything going to 
uh, tie back to that main idea. Remember, the main idea, the thesis, the propositional statement, that is the driving force of your entire sermon. How are the points, how are the, the different sections of your sermon going to relate to that, revert back to that, uh, come, come to that? Also, what will your introduction be? How are you going to introduce your sermon? Are you going to start with an illustration? Are you going to start with a, a story? Are you going to start with something from the news? Are you going to start with a, a survey? Um, oftentimes, you need to surface what I call surface the need to your audience. In other words, if you stand up, now Martin Lloyd-Jones did this, and, and he was an awesome, wonderful preacher, one of my favorite preachers, and he could probably get away with it, but he did not have any clear, engaging introductions in his sermons. I mean, if you listen to um, the MLJ Trust and you listen to the Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons, please open your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter 12, where we left off last week, and you will see, he just says, open your Bible to the chapter, and, and I mean, you can start your sermon that way, Open your Bible to such and such, and you can start right in. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But in preaching, there's a little bit of oratory rhetoric that you need to use in order to captivate your audience. Now, we as Calvinists believe in total depravity. We believe in irresistible grace. We believe that God is sovereign in salvation. But we also know that he uses means to awaken sinners from their deadness and also to sanctify believers and because we believe that humans are sinful your congregation is walking into the worship service with so many different things on their minds they've come in with all these different distractions and they're sitting down and they know they need to listen to god's word and you also have unbelievers in your congregation and so when you stand up before them you've got to give them a reason why they want to listen to you now, that may sound a little pragmatic, but I'm just understanding human nature to know that a lot of people don't come in focused. And so when you do an introduction to your sermon, you are giving a reason for your congregation to listen. And, and so you're surfacing the need. Why do they need to listen? You're bringing up the point of your sermon. You are going to address the main issue. And so as you do this homiletical outline, you are actually crafting your sermon. I was talking with a, a young man that I'm, that I'm discipling and I'm mentoring, and we meet each week, and I'm helping him understand how to preach. And I told him the other day that you can take five pastors and give them one text of Scripture, and hopefully if they're doing exegesis correctly, they will all come up with the main point of that passage of Scripture and how it's to be understood in its literary, grammatical, historical context to the original readers. And all of those pastors, if they are faithful to the text, will understand the meaning, the purpose of that text. Because exegesis is more of a science. There are rules to exegesis. But then when it comes to homiletics, how you're going to preach that text you may have five different structures, homiletically, five different sermons of how those pastors are going to preach the text. And they're all going to preach the text faithfully with that main point. But the way they structure the sermon may be different because the homiletical outline is more of an art than a science. This is where the art of preaching comes in. And this often at times is affected by who's in your congregation, the nature of the spiritual maturity of your congregation, 
who, who you're preaching to. And so the homiletical outline needs to be well-crafted. What illustrations are you going to use? Are you going to load it with too many illustrations that the illustrations overpower the purpose of the text? I think sometimes pastors can maybe put too many illustrations in, and what people remember are the illustrations or the analogies or the stories, and they don't actually remember the text. And so you've got to be very judicious in how you're going to use illustrations. How are you going to conclude? I I think this is one of my weaknesses in preaching, and I'm just going to confess this. I spend a lot of time thinking about illustrations. I think about um, how I'm going to open the sermon, how I'm going to, what my propositional statement is, how I'm going to flow from point to point, the transitions, that I don't oftentimes put as much emphasis or as much time in the conclusion. And actually, the conclusion is probably the most important part of the sermon because that's the last thing that people are going to hear. How are you going to conclude? Are you going to conclude with a call to repentance? Are you going to conclude with an illustration? Are you going to conclude? How are you going to do that? So you need to think through the actual homiletical outline, the the preaching points, the transitions, the illustrations, the introduction, the conclusion, the wording, how you're going to craft the actual sermon that you're going to preach. Okay, step number six, consult commentaries. Notice how I have this as step six. You don't want to be too dependent on what the commentaries say that you don't do the heavy lifting yourself. So only after you've personally labored in the first five steps, you now consult commentaries and other sources, and you do that to confirm your findings. You do that to make sure that you're not off base. Remember, you're not preaching someone else's thoughts from a commentary. You're preaching the Bible. And God has given you, personally, Pastor, the Holy Spirit to illuminate your thinking. Now, commentaries are good. They're helpful. Sometimes some of them get way into the weeds. And you need to be careful that you don't consult way too many commentaries. Sometimes if you have a difficult passage of Scripture, there's been times where you know, there's a difficult passage of Scripture that has multiple understandings. It's maybe an obscure passage that's been controversial. You may want to spend more time consulting the commentaries just so that you get an idea of where different people land. But you need to be very judicious, careful, in relying upon commentaries. Now, I could sit here and tell you, you know, what commentaries you need to use. But let me just um, give you a good website. It's bestcommentaries.com, bestcommentaries.com. And it gives you every book of the Bible, and it will give what they think are the top commentaries. And so you can go there. I know Ligonier's, which is R.C. Sproul's ministry, they have the same thing where they give their top commentaries. And so you can go see what those commentaries are. But let me just kind of give you my personal favorites. And let me just kind of, I've broken them up in exegetical commentaries and homiletical commentaries. There, there are different types of commentaries. There are the highly critical exegetical commentaries where you need to be proficient in the Greek and Hebrew that are, that are pretty studious, scholarly. And then there's more of the pastoral, homiletical, devotional type commentaries that are not as exhaustive and critical as far as the, the, the uh, scholarship. So let me give you the exegetical ones first. I'll give you um, four of my favorite of the kind of the comprehensive deep Greek and Hebrew ones, and that is the New International Commentary on both the Old and New Testament. This is a conservative commentary. 
It's uh, highly exegetical, New International Commentary. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, these are very, very good. The Pillar New Testament Commentary. Uh, D.A. Carson is the editor of this series. Uh, this is fairly new commentary series. Um, and even They ha- don't even have all the books of the Bible yet, but these are conservative commentaries that have come out. I find that most of them are, 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 are reformed in nature, um, not ultra-ultra-reformed, but um, the pillar New Testament commentary is good. The Baker exegetical commentary, this is another good conservative commentary that gets very uh, in-depth, uh, the Baker exegetical commentary. And then the New American commentary. This is more of the, the Southern Baptist commentary. But the New American commentary, I, I find that the New American commentary is a good bridge between the highly critical commentaries, the highly scholarly ones, and the more pastoral. So, for example, uh, my elder in my church that teach our growth groups, they oftentimes will use my New American Commentary because it's not as heavy as maybe the Pillar or the Baker, but it's not like a devotional pastoral commentary. Um, It's kind of midway in between, and so my elders have found the New American Commentary to be very helpful. Let's talk about the homiletical or pastoral commentaries. Uh, I'll give you three of those. I like the Bible Speaks Today series um, from InterVarsity Press, edited by John Stott. Uh, these are very accessible. Um, they're, they're conservative, the Bible Speaks Today series. Um, Crossway has a great series called Preach the Word series. It's edited by Kent Hughes. These are actually sermons by mainly reformed pastors, modern-day pastors that have been put into commentaries. Um, so these are from Crossway. Um, Focus on the Bible commentary uh, by Christian Focus. And then the Reformed expository commentaries are wonderful. Um, Those are also sermons by mainly Presbyterian pastors uh, published by PNR Publishing, the Reformed uh, expository commentaries. All right, so those are the first six steps. Now, step seven, application issues. Because remember, Preaching is more than just giving information. It's more than just a lecture. You also want to aim for application. And so let's ask some application questions. So four questions to ask of your text that you're working on that week. So here's the four questions to ask. Is this text calling me to do something? In other words, is this text calling me to to a duty, to behavior, to do something? Number two, is this text calling me to be something? Is it reflecting character issues? Number three, is this text calling me to aspire to something or to devote energy to something? Is it related to goals? And then number four, is this text calling me to discern truth from error? And there's a really good book by Daniel Doriani called Putting Truth to Work. The Theory and Practice of Biblical Application. He goes through these four questions and helps pastors understand what it means to ask some application questions of the text. And again, hopefully those questions are being asked and answered during your exegetical work. What's the nature of the text? What's it driving you to do? How are you to respond? The text will determine that. And then you also maybe need to think of audience types. What, who is in your audience? Who is in your congregation? So, for example, if you're preaching predominantly to Christians, there may be four types of Christians in your congregation. There may be complacent Christians that are just kind of, 
gotten um, lax and they're kind of coasting. There may be some anxious Christians who are fearful and anxious and maybe they're dealing with um, some anxiety. Maybe there's some legalistic, moralistic Christians that have a holier-than-thou attitude. Maybe there's some worldly compromising Christians that are, that are like licentious, that are compromising and becoming worldly. Non-Christians. Are you acknowledging non-Christians when you're preaching? When you are preaching, are you anticipating the objections that a non-Christian or maybe an atheist would have? Are you adding an apologetic element to your sermon? Now, you're not necessarily doing apologetics in every sermon, but maybe you're coming across a passage of Scripture and you may say something like, now, I understand that if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, we're glad you're here. You may object to some things in this passage of Scripture. Let me, let me answer maybe an objection that you have. And then you spend maybe three to four minutes in your sermon answering an objection. And then think about the demographics. Are you, do you have men, women, boys, girls, married, single, widowed, age group? Are you acknowledging children or youth in your sermon? Socioeconomic, education level, um, employer, employee, all those different types of things. And again, William Perkins, the great re- um, Reformed Puritan, English Puritan, the art of prophesying, and, and prophesying is not like what we think is like an extreme charismatic thing. That's just basically the, the word used for preaching back in the Puritan days. The art of prophesying, um, William Perkins, with some of these questions related to audience. So that's step number seven. Step eight is when you step back from your sermon, you need to ask the shepherding questions. How are you pastoring the flock through the preaching? So question number one you may need to ask is, how am I loving the flock through this sermon? How am I expressing my love to the congregation that God has entrusted to me through this sermon? Number two, how am I leading the flock through this sermon? Remember 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. How am I leading through the sermon? So how am I loving through the sermon? How am I leading through the sermon? Some questions to ask. And then number three, how does this sermon address the particular and present needs of my congregation? You may providentially in God's sovereignty come across a passage of Scripture that was what you were scheduled to preach because you're doing expository preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and it just so happens that that particular text is dealing with an issue that's very pertinent to the life of your congregation. There may be times where you might need to divert from your preaching schedule to address a particular need that has come up that's just urgent in your congregation. It is perfectly fine to say, you know what, we're going through the book of 1 Timothy, but this week we need to deal with this psalm because maybe there was a tragic accident in your community, maybe there's um, an issue of cancer, maybe there's uh, something that's affected the community, and just... This, is, this calls for wisdom, and this is where a, a good godly group of elders around you can help you. You know, Go to your elders and say, hey, you know what? I was planning on preaching just consecutively through the text, but, man, this is happening in our church. This is happening in our community. What do you guys think about me addressing the need by taking us out of the book and spending time just addressing this need this week? So use the, the wisdom of your elders. And so you may need to, to be, just be aware of your audience how are you shepherding your own congregation sometimes in the age of live stream 
in the age of podcast. Uh, maybe some young pastors feel like I need to preach to a podcast audience or to a YouTube audience or to a Facebook audience or to the live stream. I'm preaching to nameless, faceless people out there I don't know because I want to get clicks and likes and subscribers that I'm not actually preaching to the congregation that God has entrusted to me. Remember, you are a pastor and a preacher. You lead, you shepherd, you love your congregation through that preaching. And so be sensitive to the people whom God has given you that are right in front of you on the Lord's Day as you're looking at faces, as you're thinking about the counseling sessions you've been in that that past week, the hospital visits, the phone calls, the texts, the conversations, even maybe in the hallway before you preach, somebody came to you with a burden. All these things will impact the way you shepherd through your preaching. Okay, step number nine, gospel issues. Okay, how does this passage point back to Christ and the hope and the redemption of the gospel? Are you only preaching the moral imperatives in your text without undergirding them in the gospel indicatives? In other words, there are passages of Scripture that have moral imperatives, things that you are calling your people to do. And it's very important that you do that to be faithful to the text. But as you do that, please, please, please root those moral imperatives back into the gospel indicatives. In other words, tell people you need to do such and such, whatever the text calls them to do, but then remind them the only way we can do these is because of what Christ has done for us, because we are clothed in his righteousness, because we stand accepted, because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. You do not want to leave your people feeling deflated and defeated at the end of the sermon because you've put a burden on them of something they're supposed to do, which the text will tell them what they are to do, and you're to call them to that, but you need to give them the power of the gospel you need to show them christ as the source and strength of that ability to do that in other words you can be faithful to the text exegetically you can preach it faithfully and never get around to the gospel or the christ-centered nature of the text if an orthodox jew or a mormon or a unitarian would amen your sermon you may have given some great moral truths but not actually preached the gospel of Christ. I'll give you an example. Um, a few months ago, we had a guest preacher come and preach in our church. And um, I was supposed to be gone for whatever reason. I was not able to take that trip because of some health issues related to my family. And so I ended up still inviting him to come preach. And I was there in the congregation um, listening to a sermon and he preached from the Old Testament, and it was faithful to the Old Testament. It was exegetically accurate. But I kept waiting at the end of the sermon for him to get to Jesus, to get to the gospel, to, to point us forward to the gospel implications, and it never got there. And so the sermon was halfway good. It, it, it was faithful to the Old Testament text, but it never got to the gospel implications, to the fulfillment in Christ, pointing us to Jesus. And so that's a real danger, especially when you're preaching from the Old Testament. You can faithfully preach the Old Testament text, but never actually drive it home towards the Christ-centered nature 
and the gospel-centered implications. And so a great book is by Graham Goldsworthy. He's from Australia. He's got a lot of good books on this, but um, uh, Preaching the Whole Bible as Christian Scripture is a great book. Preaching the Whole Bible as Christian Scripture. So making sure that when you are especially preaching an Old Testament passage, that you are rooting it into the gospel implications. Now, you're not shoehorning every Old Testament passage and artificially making it apply to Christ or coming up with some wild allegory to try to make every Old Testament text to Jesus. But you can bring in what I call the gospel implications. In other words, what what does this Old Testament text teach us about the gospel, about grace, about repentance and forgiveness and, and, and the cross and pointing forward to Jesus and the fulfillment in the New Testament? All right, step 10. And these are just some final questions you want to ask yourself as you wrap up your sermon. Prep. Have I been faithful to the text? Or have I imposed what I want to say to my congregation on the text? Have I done imposition, imposing my idea, or have I done exposition, exposing what the text says? Have I submitted myself to the Holy Spirit's fixed meaning of the text? Another question you may ask is, how will this sermon be an act of worship to glorify God? Remember from the last podcast on a definition of expository preaching, first and foremost, it's an act of worship to the triune God. Is it an act of worship? And then have you bathed the sermon in prayer? Have you been praying through your sermon prep? Have you been praying for your people? Have you been praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to be, to be evident when you preach? And then are you relying on the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so in the next podcast, we're going to talk about the main event. What do you do when you actually stand up to preach? This is just the preparation. And again, this is 10 steps. Some of these flow in and out of each other. Some of these are, are you, know, you know, you don't necessarily have to do every time you preach. Again, I've given you 10 steps to help in your toolbox so that you can have maybe more information or more tools or more resources than maybe you need. And so As you think about preparing a sermon, these are some helpful steps that I have found that have undergirded and encouraged and equipped those that are just starting out doing some expository preaching to learn how to craft a sermon. And again, there is a science to it through exegesis. There's an art to it in how you create the homiletical outline and then there's some oratory as well as how you wordsmith how you communicate how you deliver and so we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next podcast that i call the main event the actual delivery of the sermon how do you stand up and actually preach what the work that you've done in this 10-step process so hopefully this has been helpful to you to understand this 10-step process in expository preaching If you would like for me to possibly come and do 
this preaching workshop in your church or to an area of churches. I've done it uh, to an association of churches in Tennessee. I've done it to a group of churches in Nebraska. I've taught it here in Colorado. Uh, Just contact me and I'll look at my schedule and see if there's a possibility that I could come out and do some of this teaching to you if you are interested in that. So you can go to seancole.net and get all my contact information there. I'd love to be a resource to you. Or if you are a pastor that just wants to email me or to contact me to get some encouragement, I'm more than willing to do that as well. So let's all, as we prepare to preach, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.